I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, and that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Darish Chai Experiment, the show where we begin to change the underlying questions and assumptions of our life from good versus evil to a scale of life versus death. This year, in the three-year cycle, we run into a first. So in the one-year cycle, the current Parsha, the one-year Parsha that we've been going through, chapter 25, it ends halfway through chapter 25. And the new Parsha, Parsha Toledot, begins in verse 19. Fortunately for us, as we go through the three-year cycle, we get to, this time, view the whole of chapter 25, plus a bit of chapter 26 in this cycle. And I think this is important because this entire chapter and the beginning of the next one has a unified topic from beginning to end. So Avraham, the patriarch, the, the leader of this nation, he's passing away. And we've been looking at Avraham's life since all the way back in Genesis 12. And his life has given us the foundation for many topics that are part of the biblical narrative. Topics like righteousness, faith, covenant, obedience, prophecy, sacrifice, loyalty, and so many more have been on display for us. These positive examples of what a man of God looks like. But as we've also talked about, Abraham was not perfect. He did make mistakes, just as we all tend to do. He tried to bring about God's promise under his own power. He gave his wife to other men in order to save his own life. He brought his nephew with him from Haran when he was told not to bring family with him, to leave his family. He wasn't always a perfect example. But now, in the course of the narrative of Genesis, Abraham is passing on, and so the story begins to pass to his children, or to his seed. Now, this chapter may not seem like a lot from here, as we read through it and just skim through it in our normal reading through Scripture. But if we stop and we examine it, it actually becomes rather complex, because there's an interplay of topics in this chapter that are deeply profound when you see what it is that the narrative is doing here. I'm not going to be able to cover everything that's contained in this chapter. Please, do not let the genealogies contained in this chapter fool you, as we've talked about before. Genealogies contain a message within them just as much as the rest of Scripture. The fact that multiple generations are being presented, it reveals that the topics that Scripture is discussing when we get to a portion that contains genealogies is a topic that's greater than any single person or even greater than any single society. It's a topic that spans generations. It goes beyond space and into time. The topics that can seem so far beyond us in some ways, but however, they can also inform us in this complexity of this thing that we call life. This chapter, in fact, culminates in dealing with several philosophical outlooks that many people in our world operate under even today. Ways of thought that are opposed to God and are opposed to what God is doing on this earth. One that's prevalent today in this world and one that rears its ugly head not just in the world, but in the very midst of God's people. 
So let's go ahead and let's read Genesis 25, verse 1 through chapter 26, verse 11. Genesis 25, 1 through 26, 11. And Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimron, and Yokshan, and Madan, and Midian, and Yishbak, and Shubah. And Yokshan brought forth Sheva and Dadan, and the sons of Dadan were Ashurim, and Letushim, and Lemumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, and Ether, and Chanak, and Avidah, and Eladah, and all these were the children of Keturah. Now Avraham gave all that he had to Yitzhak, but to the sons of the concubines whom Avraham had, Avraham gave gifts while he was still living, and he sent them away from his son Yitzhak, eastward to the land of the east. And these are all the years of Abraham's life which he lived, 175 years. And Abraham breathed his last, and died in a good old age, aged and satisfied, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Yitzhak and Yishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Sochar the Chetite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Chet. There Abraham was buried with Sarah his wife. And it came to be after the death of Abraham that Elohim blessed his son Yitzhak, and Yitzhak dwelt in Be'er Lechairoi. And this is the genealogy of Yishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Mitzrayan, Sarah's female servant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Yishmael by their names according to their generations. The firstborn of Yishmael, Nevaiot, then Kedar, and Avdel, and Mibshan, and Mishma, and Dudma, and Masa, Hadar, Tamah, Teatur, Nifish, and Kedemah. And these were the sons of Yishmael, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements, twelve chiefs according to their tribes. And these were the years of the life of Yishmael, one hundred and thirty-seven years, and he breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people. And they dwelt from Chavalah as far as Shur, which is east of Mitzrayim, as you go towards Ashur. He settled before all his brothers. And this is the genealogy of Yitzhak, Abraham's son. Abraham brought forth Yitzhak, and Yitzhak was forty years old when he took Rivka as wife, the daughter of Betuel the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Levan the Aramean. And Yitzhak prayed to Hashem for his wife, because she was barren. And Hashem answered his prayer, and Rivka his wife conceived. And within her the children struggled together, and she said, If all is right, why am I this way? So she went to ask Hashem. And Hashem said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older serve the younger. And when the days were filled for her to give birth, and see twins were in her womb, and the first came out red all over like a hairy garment, so they called his name Isav. And afterward his brother came out, with his hand holding on to Asav's heel. So the name was called Yaakov, and Yitzhak was sixty years old when she bore them. And the boys grew up, and Esav became a man knowing how to hunt, a man of the field, while Yaakov was complete man, dwelling in tents. And Yitzhak loved Esav because he ate of his wild game, but Rivka loved Yaakov. And Yaakov cooked a stew, and Esav came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esav said to Yaakov, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. And that is why his name was called Edom. But Yaakov said, Sell me your birthright today. And Esav said, Look, I am going to die, so why should I have a birthright? And Yaakov said, Swear to me today. And he swore to him and sold his birthright to Yaakov. Yaakov then gave Esav bread and stew of lentils, and he ate and drank and rose up and left. Thus Esav despised his birthright. And there was a scarcity of food in the land, and besides the first scarcity of food, which was in the days of Abraham, and Yitzhak went to Avimelech, sovereign of the Philistines in Gerar. And Hashem appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Mitzrayim, live in the land which I command you. Sojourn in this land, 
and I shall be with you and bless you, and I give you these lands to you and to your seed. And I shall establish the oath which I swore to Abraham your father, and I shall increase your seed like the stars of the heavens, and I shall give all these lands to your seed. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and guarded my charge and commanded my laws and my Torah. And Yitzhak dwelt in Gerar. And when the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he was afraid to say, She is my wife, thinking, lest the men of this place should kill me for Rivka, because she is good-looking. And it came to be, when he had been there a long time, that Evimelech, sovereign of the Philistines, looked through a window, and he watched and saw Yitzhak playing with Rivka, his wife. So Evimelech called Yitzhak and said, See, truly, she is your wife. So how could you say, She is my sister? And Yitzhak said to him, Because I said, Lest I die on account of her. And Evimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people had almost lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. And Avimelech commanded all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall certainly be put to death. So back when we began this venture of the Deresh Chai experiment, I used the first several weeks to develop some tools that we could use to help us to determine what is going on in a particular passage or what the, the authors are trying to highlight. And we've been using those tools throughout. I haven't really brought them out or mentioned them specifically as we've been using them. But we have been using them. They've just kind of been in the background. Let's kind of go back through those a little bit. So we looked at using words that were repeated in close proximity to each other to develop ideas that were contained in the text. This particular method has been immensely useful, especially for myself, and especially when approaching difficult passages. And the majority of this chapter is one of those difficult passages. Because here we are again, and not for the last time, discussing just a long list of names. And this one is actually short in the grand scheme of things. These long lists of names of people that we'll never meet represent lives that were lived by real people. And they find the entirety of their history summed up in a list among so many other names that mean nothing to us. So how were we to take this seriously? Our modern outlook on passages such as these is to read over them as quickly as possible, if we can even be bothered to read them at all. Studying passages such as this, they seem pointless, right? What do I care who Abraham's other children were? What do I care about the names of the sons of Ishmael? These things have zero bearing on me or my life as I live it now. In fact, it's best just to ignore these and move on to the narrative. Because there is a bit of story in this chapter after all, right? We have that little short narrative that appeals to our sensibilities, so perhaps we should just focus there. But I think that if we do that, we'll miss something, something much larger that's going on, that the narrative helps to give us a key to understand what it is that the genealogies are talking about. If we focus only on the narrative, we will miss the majority of this chapter. And it can't simply just be a list with no point to it other than, and this person had kids, can it? Well, that's where those tools that we looked at can come in very handy. This is where we don our Sherlock Holmes hats, we pull out our magnifying glass, and we examine the text as closely as possible, and this can become very useful. There are several words used in this chapter that can help us to catch a glimpse of what it is that the chapter is speaking out. So to begin with, one of the ways that we talked about of viewing scripture in order to define what it is talking about is to break it up into its individual pieces, right? The puzzle pieces that we talked about are in them putting them back together and seeing how they connect and link to each other. So there are four parts to this chapter. 
we've got the sons of Abraham, the sons of Ishmael, the sons of Isaac, and then we've got Isaac and Rachel in Gerar. Four sections, and each of them focused on the, the relationships of three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. And each section discusses not only the sons, but they contain within them several concepts that are important. Number one, death. Each section ends with the idea of death. The first section ends with the idea of the death of Abraham. The second section ends with the death of Ishmael. The third section ends with Esau lamenting his own impending death. And the fourth section deals with the people of Gerar being threatened with death if they do anything against Isaac. The second idea that seems to be repeating through on, throughout this chapter is the passing on of the birthright. So the first discusses the birthright being passed from Abraham to Isaac. And Ishmael is passed over for that, and yet he does receive gifts from his father. The second part discusses Ishmael, the one who did not receive the birthright. His twelve sons, however, become great on the earth in their own right. They become as twelve princes who dwelt over vast swaths of land. Ishmael was blessed according to the human reckoning of blessing. The third discusses the birthright of Isaac and who it will pass to among his children. This third section also represents ideas such as the beast-like nature of Esau, the parental favoritism and continued barrenness and more. And the fourth section concerns the birthright that God is giving to Abraham's children, that he's going to confirm the covenant that he promised Abraham through Isaac. So if we look at these stories chiastically, especially the ones that contain just in chapter 25, the stories of Abraham's sons, Ishmael's sons, and Isaac's sons, if we look at them chiastically, or chiastically, depending on how you wish to pronounce that word, we can find there's a connection under discussion in those three sections that is modeled and in some ways morphed by that fourth section. So in the first and the third story, it's the younger that receives the birthright. In the third, and specifically stated that the older will serve the younger. So in the first story, it's the younger of Isaac receiving the birthright from Abraham. In the third story, it's Yaakov, Jacob, who is the younger and who receives the birthright. The middle section, however, is one in which the birthright and the blessing are completely absent. The older child who was not part of the line of blessing and covenant. And that brings us to this last item. If we consider the first and the third sections, we see a family who is blessed by God. But that blessing is really hard to spot in the text. In fact, if it were not called out in verse 11 that Isaac was blessed by God, we would completely miss it. The same way that we might miss the blessing of Abraham. What do we see as the plight of the wives of these two men of promise? Both wives, Sarah and Rebekah, were barren. For Sarah, she was barren many years, didn't have a child until she was 90. For Rebekah, we read specifically, it was 20 years after they were married before she had Jacob and Esau. In the middle, however, we have Ishmael, the son who wasn't part of the blessing, who wasn't part of the covenant, the son who was not part of the promise. He had 12 sons. In the eyes of the world, Ishmael would appear to be the one who was blessed by God. And Isaac would look like the one who was cursed. Avraham, Isaac, both of them looked like they were cursed from the outside. 
Because what was the f curse that was put on Eve when she ate fruit, if we go all the way back to Genesis 3? Well, she was cursed with increased difficulty in bearing children. And Adam received the curse of increased difficulty in bringing forth fruit, specifically from the land. But we can use it as a loose symbol in this context. So what is one of the curses of disobedience then later in the Torah? If you do not obey my covenant, when I send you out of the land, you will be barren. Right? Barrenness is a curse of disobedience to Torah, according to the Torah. So looking into this family from the outside, it would appear as though Sarah, specifically, was cursed. And Rebecca was cursed. And their husbands were cursed through their covenant with their wives. And this is what our eyes and what our society would have us to think about this line of promise. What the world would have us to think is that they were, in fact, cursed. I hope that going through this can help you to appreciate the complexity of the topics being highlighted in this chapter. Usually, when we have a narrative, we can find the topics rather easily. But it's becoming my experience that many of the most complex ideas that Scripture speaks on are done so in ways that we commonly consider the boring parts. So I pray that I can do justice to the complex interactions of ideas that are present here. So I'm really not sure where the best place to begin a deeper explanation of these topics is, or if I should even begin to open and descend down into the rabbit hole that this chapter presents. Because the sheer complexity of these topics guarantees that I'm not going to be able to hit everything. And I think that one of the things that we should begin to appreciate is that when we get to sections of Scripture that discuss genealogies or topics that are so boring like laws and rules and so on and so forth, that the topics that are under discussion, they take on a hint of philosophy and theology that span generations and cultures. I want to specifically focus on two main philosophical outlooks and what Scripture has to say on these. So on the topic of the seed of Abraham and the passing of the covenant and blessing from one generation to another, the older serving the younger, parental favoritism, and more are topics that are discussed all throughout Scripture. So we're going to get to those in upcoming episodes. And some of them have already been addressed in the past, so I'm not going to touch on those topics that are presented in this chapter today. The two that we are going to look at are topics that Scripture speaks on, but not always in the most direct of manners. The first is one that applies to us all, but that many who are believers have some sort of handle on, and that is the topic of death. This is one of those tenets of existence that is inherent in this thing that we call life. We will die, every single one of us. We can't avoid it. In fact, this chapter and every single story in this chapter speaks of death. Avraham, the great patriarch, dies. Ishmael, the firstborn son of Avraham, dies. Their legacy is spoken of in the children that they leave behind and the birthright that passes from one generation to the next. The third story is one that examines the topic in a way that we don't generally appreciate. And that's because we don't understand the context and the culture of the people who are being spoken of. We're so disconnected from the Jewish people, and it's damaged our view of this story, and many others in my opinion. So let's look at some of the cultural specifics that are going on here that we just don't get. So there's Jacob and there's Esau, brothers who are opposites of each other in many ways. One is hairy, the other is smooth. One is a hunter, the other is a shepherd. 
One is favored by his father, and the other is favored by his mother. One is wild, the other is tamed. They're born when Isaac is 60, and so that means that Abraham is 160 years old. And that means that Abraham has 15 years with these grandchildren. So the thing that we miss in Jewish culture is this thing called the red lentil stew. And it is a traditional dish of mourning in Judaism. If we understand this, then we see that the episode with the selling of the birthright occurs perhaps just after the death of Abraham. His family is in mourning, and these boys? These boys are 15 years old. So let's paint a picture of what might be happening here, and it might give us some insight on what's really at play in this birthright transfer. So Abraham dies at the ripe old age of 175, and these two young boys who loved and respected their elder, their grandfather, in their grief and teenage angst, these two boys who could not be any more opposites of each other react in their own and opposite ways. The wild hunter runs to the field to deal with death in isolation away from the family. I mean, which of us hasn't been tempted or taken the opportunity to, to get out of the house, to get out of society, and to deal with loss alone? But the shepherd, the shepherd's son, the tame son, stays behind and he cares for the family. Cooking in the ancient Near East was not a manly task. If there was a woman available to cook, it was her job to do the cooking. So why would Jacob be cooking the stew? During the time of mourning for the immediate family of the deceased was forbidden from doing anything. Isaac and Rebekah, they would be sitting in mourning, and it was their responsibility of those around them, their immediate family, to provide for them. Well, the only immediate family that's around is Jacob and Esau. So Esau escapes to the field, shirking his duty to care for his parents, dealing with his angst and his mourning in his own way away from anyone else. Rather than killing anything while he's out there, however, perhaps he begins to consider his own death and his own mortality. His grief and his angst then prevent him from being successful in his hunt. And when he finally returns, he's weary and he's famished. He's despondent that I can't escape my fate. I too am going to die. He, it settles into him this existential angst of death. Rather than on planning for the future, well, let's just live in the moment. Let's fulfill our every desire, regardless of the cost. I mean, YOLO, you only live once after all, right? Might as well make the most of it. In fact, if we read through the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes tackles this topic head on, and at least seems to reach some very similar conclusions. In Ecclesiastes 2, 22-24, says, for what does a man get for all of his labor and strain of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun? For all his days are sufferings, and his work grievous. Even in the night his heart takes no rest, and that too is futile. A man could do no better but to eat and drink and enjoy himself in his labor. That too I saw was from the hand of God. And then Ecclesiastes 3.22 it says, So I saw that man could do no better but to rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who would bring him to see what shall be after him? Esau's response to Jacob, I've usually heard steeped in the idea that he had been out for so long and so unsuccessful in his hunt that he was on the brink of death in that very moment. Coming in, panting, 
on the brink of death saying, give me that stew or I'm going to die. But that's something that we arrive at simply because we miss out on the cultural clues. And by doing so, we've missed out on the larger picture. Esau isn't near death or about to keel over. Rather, I think his attitude in the moment has taken on the distinctly nihilistic and existential bent. What good is a birthright going to do me if I'm simply going to end up as dust like my grandfather? Avraham was a great man. He was blessed by God. He had so many stories of how God had saved him and blessed him. And yet, in the end, did it matter? He still ended up in a box buried under the ground. What does any of this matter? I too, I'm going to pass on one day and the world will continue on without me. What does it matter to me if I leave anything behind for the generations after me? Because I'm not going to get to experience it. I know that when I was a young man, I experienced many of these same thoughts myself when I was faced with death. In high school, I had a graduating class of 44, a very small town in Iowa. Each grade was about the same size, and in my four years of high school, three of my classmates died. Two of them, very close friends of mine, in my close circles. They died in a car accident. And then later, another boy in the class behind mine died from a heart problem. And I couldn't help but thinking, I too, I'm going to end up like them. I too will pass on, and I have no control over when it could happen. It could happen tomorrow, just as it happened to them yesterday. What does it matter to them what we do today? They're dead and gone. They're never going to be seen again. And this existential angst is something that most of us have dealt with at one point or another. So the question is, how will we react when we're faced with our own mortality? Will you give up a future blessing? so that you can experience an immediate fulfillment of desire? In a way, this entire episode speaks to the concept of sacrifice, giving up in the immediate in order to gain something for the future. And the entire lives of the boys reflect this difference in attitude. Jacob, Jacob worked for the long term. He took care of animals, feeding, breeding, caring for them, so that he could gain the future benefit that doing so would bring. It's not a quick process with an immediate return. Esau, on the other hand, when he was hungry, he got fast food. He just headed out to McDonald's. He didn't plan for the future. He lived in the moment. I'm hungry. Find an antelope. Find an elk. Find a deer. This is what Dave Ramsey would call Jacob the crockpot, and Esau he would call the microwave. When faced with their mortality, their base natures express themselves overtly. And we could perhaps boil down the differences in their responses to a preoccupation with death on Esau's case and a preoccupation with life on Jacob's case. Because where was their focus? In the case of Esau, it was taking life in order to continue his own existence. But in the case of Jacob, he was dedicated to giving and sustaining life regardless of personal cost or personal mortality. And this attitude is one that should separate the people of God and the people of Israel from the world at large. Because the world and sin, it wants to experience life at its fullest in every moment. Future generations, they don't matter. 
they can take care of our messes. As long as I have what I desire now, they can rot. But the opposite of this attitude is, is the attitude of sacrifice. It's that of giving up the things that you want in this moment in order to gain a great benefit for the future, even if you don't get to experience that benefit. And scripture's full of this idea, sacrifice an animal to gain a relationship. In our world, we sacrifice time and energy to gain money. We sacrifice money to gain a retirement or a buffer against the unknown. We sacrifice energy and resources in order to create something new. We store up and we deny immediate gratification in order to gain that greater reward in the future. And in the Christian life, an example of this means sacrificing our mortal lives to gain an eternal life. For if you're in the Christian, if you're, if you're a believer in Messiah Yeshua, you understand that our death isn't the end of our experience on this earth. We know that there will come a resurrection of the dead. All dead, good and bad. Revelation speaks of that. And at that time, we will re be rewarded. Those who sought to practice, to spread life and to gain life and to act in covenant, and those who wallowed in and practiced death will gain death. It seems rather simple to me. The only way to truly gain life, though, is to be in covenant with the God of life, because there is no life inherent within your flesh. Not that kind of life. So we must be sure that in our lives that we are practicing life. And it's by doing so that we can gain the birthright, the inheritance that's due the sons of God. Uh, Romans 8.17 puts it this way. It says, and if children also heirs, truly heirs of God and co-heirs with Messiah, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we also be exalted or glorified together. And that brings us to the second point that I'd like to discuss, and it's one that finds its way into faith circles very easily and can end up poisoning a community. And that is the appearance of blessing. And this is where the first 11 verses of chapter 26 really come in, as they can help us to bind together the entire Parsha. We've got Isaac, the blessed one, even though it may not seem so. He's great and wealthy and an inhabitant of the land that is blessed by God, this land that God is giving as his birthright. But, but famine descends on the land. A famine descends on Isaac, just as it did on Abraham when he took the reins and was given the promise of the land. This man who was called blessed, and the land that God had promised to bless him with, are forcing him to move. And in verse 3 through 5, we read at the terms of the blessing that God gave to Isaac, and we find that it is nearly an exact repeat of the blessing that God gave to Abraham. Your seed will be increased as the stars, and I will give this land to your seed. The natural response would be, what seed? My wife is barren, and I was lucky to get two sons in one go. But that half-brother of mine has twelve. In what land? This land has experienced two famines in two generations. Thanks, I guess? One way that we see Isaac blessed, however, is in the way that Abraham was not. And that's in the telling of the story of Isaac passing off Rebekah as his sister. In both of the previous incidences with Abraham, Sarah was taken from him and into the house of another man. But in this story, Rebekah is not taken from Isaac. There is a real danger of this happening, but that danger is never realized. 
as the king sees Isaac and Rebekah acting in a way that reveals the truth of their marriage relationship. Interestingly enough, the way that is that they're described is translated as playing is a play itself on Isaac's name, laughter, mocking, but also uh, something a little more uh, intimate and romantic, a joyful, romantic wooing, I guess, if you will. But Isaac himself, this man of blessing, what is it that he sees reflected from the world? Because the world has a view of blessing, and that includes gaining things. In the ancient world, being blessed was having children. Having many children was a blessing from the gods. It was the greatest blessing because it was thought that a person lived on through their children. The ancient concept of eternal life required that a person have children. Being cut off from the land of the living, having your line cut off completely, is the worst curse that any person could experience. A man was thought to have lived on eternally through their sons and through the propagation of their name. To the ancient eye, it would have appeared that Abraham was not blessed. Oh sure, he had a lot of stuff, but he had only one son from his wife to pass that stuff on to. Isaac? Isaac himself, he wasn't very blessed either. Only two kids and only after 20 years of marriage. What did he do wrong? Which god did he piss off? In fact, why didn't he simply toss off that unfruitful woman and upgrade to someone who could provide for his needs? Ishmael, though, Ishmael had twelve sons. The gods truly must be smiling on him. He is truly blessed. Right? That's how the world sees this. And we see this in this text as it specifically states that God blessed Jacob, but then it recounts the twelve sons of Ishmael. The text also tells us of the famine, and then it tells us that this is the land that God was going to give to Isaac as his blessing. So what does it mean to be blessed by God? All too often in our society, we look on those around us and we tend to judge their status before God based on their possessions or their circumstances. Do they have a house? How big is that house? Is it in good condition? Does it break often? Do they have kids? How many? Do they have money? A car? What kind? How old? How reliable? Are they sick? Are they diseased? Are they deformed? Are they single, married, divorced? We set up these standards which we believe to be signs of a person's blessing and standing before God. And the Bible says, no, in so many places. One of those places is here. Society of the time said that blessing means children, lots of children. I mean, what good does it do, Abraham, to gain all of the possessions of the world and then to not have his life live on after him? What does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? Society tells us that blessing is being put in a place of bounty and fruitfulness, reaping the rewards of your faithfulness without hardship or trouble. But what is God's idea of blessing? Throughout the story of Abraham, we have seen that God's blessing upon Abraham was modeled by preventing Abraham from taking any of his mistakes too far. After all, Avraham made a mistake 
when he allowed Sarah to be taken from him, not just once, but twice. And in both cases, God protected Abraham from the consequences of that action. Abraham made a mistake by having children with Hagar, and God protected Abraham's family from continuing down that road and allowing Ishmael to be the one to inherit the birthright. Abraham made a mistake when he brought Lot with him, but he protected him when Abraham was forced to chase Lot down and to retrieve him from Ketaleomer and the kings that had taken them. God protects Isaac in the same way in this chapter as Rebekah is nearly taken from him, but God protects him to the point where Rebekah isn't even taken into Abimelech's home. How else does God bless Abraham? By being his helper his Azer, by doing the things for Abraham that he can't do for himself. If the sinful and corrupted nature of this world had its own way, Abraham would never have had Isaac, and Sarah would have remained eternally barren. If the sinful and corrupted nature of this world had its way, Isaac would not have had Jacob and Esau. Rebekah would have remained eternally barren as well. The covenant would not have continued at all if God had not provided a solution. If he had not stepped into the situation, overcome the natural order, there would be no Isaac, no Jacob, and no Israel. Blessing from God does not mean that your every desire will come true or that you'll live a life of ease. Blessing means that when you fall short and when you make bad decisions and when nature works against you, God will make a way for you to advance his kingdom in the way that he wishes for you to do. He will make a way for you to live out the unique purpose that he has given you. Sometimes, sometimes that blessing looks a lot like a curse. This is what Joseph is going to experience in upcoming chapters. The fulfillment of the blessing, getting there, looks like being cursed over and over again sold as a slave, imprisoned for years on a false false accusation, left to rot, and yet the end result result was being elevated to the second most powerful man in the world. Not just personal blessing, but a blessing that blessed the world at large. So we have to get over this idea that blessing means getting your way or even getting only good things from God. Sometimes blessings from God looks the exact opposite of that. Johnny Erickson Tata, a woman of God, broke her neck diving and became paralyzed from the neck down. And yet God used her mightily for his kingdom. Nate Saint and Jim Elliott were killed trying to spread the gospel through the jungles of South America. And through this tragedy, their children are now great friends with their father's murderers and a whole community and nation of people has been brought into the kingdom of God. Six million Jews were killed by a madman with a country, which led to the land of Israel being returned to its rightful inhabitants. Each of these was a blessing, and each of these was good for the world at large. But these events were not good in themselves, and they did not look like a blessing from those who experienced them. And yet through them, the world was blessed. In each of these cases and a thousand more, had those who had gone through this experience given up and assumed that God was cursing them, the kingdom of God would have been halted in its tracks. Others would have been raised up in their place to take their place. For all we know, 
These were the people that were raised up to replace others who had been given the same opportunity. If you decide that the unenviable circumstances of life that you may experience, that they are a curse, and you use them as an excuse to decide that you yourself are cursed by God, you will be. But the fact is that God wants to bless you. He's working even now to do so. Your circumstances may look like the worst possible outcome, but to God, it looks like an opportunity to create something great. And that's something that we have to learn as a people of God. We have to take our lead from Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God defines good on seven different occasions. But when? When does he do so? Good, he doesn't define good until each item is fully completed. It's not until each piece is in place and all pieces are capable of sustaining life and working in their purpose that God declares it is very good. I think we can learn from this as it's human tendency to define good and evil while we're still in the midst of the process of being created in his image. But the definition of good doesn't come until after it's all complete. And that's something we'll learn in the story of Joseph. That's something that we see all throughout the book of Genesis and the Bible itself. What man has intended for evil, God has used for good. And what is the good? The good is blessing the world. It is bringing life to the world. It's bringing about that new creation, that kingdom that's defined by life. I pray, I pray that we can all gain a better appreciation for the nuance that Scripture presents to us. If we simply discard the boring parts, we miss huge bits of this beautiful tapestry. The beautiful tapestry that God has given to us, that He has revealed to us as His way of blessing the earth. And so until next week, I pray that you look around your life. Examine your circumstances. Do they look good? Well, if you're His, they are good. They hurt. It's painful. It's hard. Difficult. But in the end, it'll be good. Because you'll find life, life eternal, life in the kingdom of God, that new creation that we read of in Isaiah and Revelation. So until we get there, until we achieve that life, let's always continue to deresh chai, to seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.